Well, we are delighted to welcome Stephen Hocko back to the program. Stephen is a reporter with Dub Network. This is a, a, a website dedicated to the dub, as in the WHL, the Western Hockey League, home of, among many other teams, the Vancouver Giants, who are doing pretty darn well. Stephen, welcome back to the morning show. Hey, thanks for having me again. How's it going? Uh, very well, thank you. And I guess you're having a lot of fun, uh, even more than you were a week or so ago when we spoke, because at that point, the Giants had just begun their series against the Spokane Chiefs and round two of the playoffs for this team. And now, well, by gosh, they're at the other end of that one with another successful result. Tell us more, please, Stephen. Yeah, they um, they beat Spokane in five games on Friday night, and they're going to their first uh, league final since 2007. It's a pretty exciting time to be watching. Well, I'll bet you it is. Now, as I understand it, the well, not number one draft pick, but certainly one of the top ten draft picks in this year's NHL draft, the Vancouver Giants' own Bowen Byram, was all of five years old the last time his team that he's playing for now, the Giants, made it this far into the playoffs. Yeah, it's pretty crazy to think about. It kind of puts things into perspective with how long ago it was. Um, but now he's the, he's the guy that's kind of leading the way for them this year, and he's been their best player, or one of their best players, if not. All right, and you talked also about their goalie with when you were with us last week. Uh, tell us more about him, too, because I understand without him, uh, obviously the goal, goaltending needs to be pretty good in the playoffs, but this, this was a particularly special brand of goaltending. Yeah, before before this round against Spokane, they, they kind of split the duties between David Tendick and Trent Minor, but going into the Spokane series, they kind of they just decided on David Tendick for the whole series, and it's it's paid off for them. He's been unbelievable. He's he's a sixth round pick of the Arizona Coyotes, and he's yeah he was he's a big reason why the series only lasted five games. He had a couple of great games for the Giants. Now, as the Giants are advancing to the WHL final, that means the winner of the next series goes to the Memorial Cup representing the WHL. Who are they going to Who are they going to play in the final? Or do we even know that yet this morning, Stephen? Um, as of now, we're, we don't know. But um, the, the the Eastern Conference final is is between Prince, the Prince Albert Raiders and the Edmonton Oil Kings. Okay, which, uh, the Raiders currently lead three games to two. Um, they play this afternoon, actually, so we may find out as early as this afternoon who the Giants are playing. Okay, so that's Game 6, but there isn't even a possibility of a Game 7 in that series. So the Giants uh, get a chance to uh, take a few days to heal, to rest up, and get ready for the final against one of those two teams. Well, who will have home ice advantage uh, once they know who the opponents are? Um, if they play Prince Albert, Prince Albert will have home ice because they, they finished the fir- first place in the whole league. Um, and, and the Giants finished first in the West. So if, if they play Edmonton, they get the Giants get home ice. So, yeah. So if they play Edmonton, they get home ice. If they play Prince Albert, Prince Albert gets home ice. Interesting. And uh, how do you like the Giants' chances against both of those teams? Given particularly the PA, Prince Albert was uh, number one overall, you'd have to think the Giants would prefer playing the Edmonton Oil Kings. Yeah, I think they prefer Edmonton, but I I feel like they're they'll be competitive against either team. They the Prince Albert Raiders have have kind of looked a bit more human as of late, whereas throughout the regular season they seemed they seemed pretty unbeatable, but yeah, I, like I said about the Spokane series, it could go either way, but I I I think the the Giants have more than a fighting chance at the series. They 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 played Prince Albert once this year and they beat them 3 to 1. Uh so 
I'm I would be confident with either team. Okay, so now the Langley Event Center, of course, is the new home of the Vancouver Giants as of a couple of seasons ago. And obviously, once you get to the playoff point in the season, there are no tickets. The joint is absolutely sold out. Tickets are in high demand. The atmosphere inside the building is positively electric. Are the folks having any fun, Stephen? You know what? They, it, it's been. I think every every game of the Spokane series was sold out or just had standing room only tickets available. Well, it was, sure. It, yeah, it was pretty. It was pretty special to watch. Like in in game two, the Giants were down two to nothing in the third period, and they rattled off four straight goals in just over three minutes. And it was the loudest I've ever heard the LEC. It was pretty crazy. It's been special to watch. They've been getting about forty eight, forty nine hundred fans. The last few games, it's been awesome. Interesting stuff. Now, when the Giants move to that next level, to the WHL final against either Prince Albert or Edmonton, when their turn comes for home games, will they be at the Langley Event Center or are they going to go to a larger rink? Um, they're going to stick with the Langley Event Center. Thought that's, so. That's where, yeah, that's where their lease is at, so they're, they're going to stick with that. It, it, it makes for a better environment, in my opinion, a better atmosphere. It's a... I, I think I said this last time I was on. It's a lot more of an intimate atmosphere. It, it just makes for a louder building and a better playoff atmosphere. How long has it been since the Giants were in the Western Conference Final? Um, it was 2010 was the last time they were in the final, I believe, and they, they lost out. Uh, I want to say it was against Tri-City. They lost two in 2010. And, um, how, and how long, Stephen, has it been since the Vancouver Giants were in the Memorial Cup? Um. 2007 was when they the last time they were in the Memorial Cup they won it they it was actually on home ice they, the Memorial Cup was at the Pacific Coliseum that year uh, so and then that's and they won their only Memorial Cup that year so was uh, Milan Lucic a part of that team yeah he was the I, he was the biggest part of that team I think he was named uh, Memorial Cup MVP that year um, in what was back to back Memorial Cup appearances they lost in the they lost in 2006 interesting came back the next year and won. All right, so how do you like their chances? We're almost out of time here, and I know you got a tea time book, so we're both heading in opposite directions. But uh, yeah. how, do you, how do you like the Giants' chances to go all the way here? I think they're very good. They've, they, I've, I've, had, I've had no doubt about it throughout the whole season that they've been one of the best teams in the country, and they've been showing it throughout these playoffs. They've only, they only have three losses and three rounds of playoffs, and so I, I'm more than confident. In, in the back east, in the OHL and the, Q, the QMJHL, they kind of stack teams a bit more, so they're a lot more top-heavy. So mm-hmm. it'll be interesting to see how they how they will stack up against those kind of teams if they do make it to Halifax. Interesting stuff. Stephen, where are you playing golf this morning? Uh, just at Surrey Golf Course there. That's a good um, track. I like the Surrey course. It's it it, yeah. it eats me up on on a bad day. I'll tell you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It should be interesting. I don't golf too much, so we'll see how it goes. Well, just play quickly. That's it's going to be yeah. a busy day on everybody's golf course. Yeah. Thanks for this, Stephen. Great to have you back on the show. Enjoy yeah. the rest of the playoffs. No problem. Anytime. Thank you. Uh, top our health officer in our province, Doctor Bonnie Henry, made it a report and an announcement this week, urgently asking our government to decriminalize personal possession of all illicit drugs. Dr. Henry, uh, it's a controversial report, and here to react to it this morning is Donald McPherson, who was the first drug policy coordinator for any North American city. He did it here in Vancouver for 22 years. Mr. McPherson is now the director of the Canadian Drug Policy Coalition and found uh, working out of SFU downtown and is with us now. Donald McPherson, good morning and welcome. 
Good morning. A pleasure to be here. So we find you in Vancouver, and it's on a Sunday morning. We're going to talk to you very briefly about this report from our chief medical officer, Dr. Bonnie Henry. This was on the matter of decriminalizing drugs. And Dr. Henry, in her report, says basically, and I'm paraphrasing, obviously, all drugs should be included. Can you flesh this out for us a bit? It's early on a Sunday morning, Mr. McPherson, and not everyone is up to speed on Dr. Henry's report this week. Right, right. Well, uh, Dr. Dr. Henry is uh, responding to, uh, in her position as Chief Public Health Officer for British Columbia, to the the worst uh, overdose uh, death crisis in the history of our country. Right. So she's clearly uh, looking for uh, this, uh, looking for new approaches. This is this crisis has been going on uh, since 2015, 2016. It's uh, accelerating. Uh, each year has been worse than the last. And it's also uh, taking place across the country. So, uh, in, in in doing her in, in coming into this position quite recently, um, I know that she has been uh, very uh, interested in hearing about other other approaches that we might take to add to the uh, the toolbox that we already are implementing in terms of harm reduction, treatment, enforcement, and prevention. Uh, uh, efforts. So, one of the one of the, the growing movement, I would say, globally, uh, to look at the failure of the criminalization of people who use drugs as an effective tool in reducing substance use, uh, in protecting uh, communities, reducing crime, or um, uh, being uh, being beneficial to the, the situation at all. Right. Uh, a number of countries have uh, decriminalized uh, all substances. Uh, many countries have de- decriminalized some substances, and a few countries have uh, decriminalized uh, all substances for personal use. And this is what what she's talking about is decriminalization of possession for personal use, right. not talking about decriminalization, decriminalization of trafficking mm-hmm. or legalization or anything like that. It's really uh, making a strong statement that we have a, a huge community of people who use substances in British Columbia at high risk of overdose from a very toxic drug supply. And we want to send a message to them and to everyone else in the community that this is a health issue. This needs a health response, an urgent health response, because four people a day are dying in British Columbia uh, at, the, at this present year. Yeah, the numbers are absolutely shocking and have been for a considerable, sustained period of time. Now, Mr. McPherson, you are the executive director of the Canadian Drug Policy Coalition, a very official-sounding organization. What is your position on Dr. Henry's report about personal decriminalization of all drugs? What does your group say about this? Our group has looked at the evidence globally. We work nationally and internationally, and we agree with the uh, World Health Organization, a number of UN agencies that have come out uh, saying that criminalization of people who use substances, the very people we're trying to help, we're trying to engage, we're trying to get into health services, uh, is counterproductive. Criminalization is creates immense stigma. It pushes people in, into the shadows. It, it uh, prevents them from uh, showing up at the health services. It's, 
it's really counterproductive. So that's why you're seeing a movement uh, in many countries to uh, to consider changing the, their laws towards decriminalization of pers- of personal use. And almost, and this is purely as an aside with this, the, the whole matter of criminalization in, as opposed to a public health issue approach, uh, you also then extend the risk of corruption in the prison system, uh, which is not helpful uh, for a, a country trying to run a prison system. So let's talk a little bit about this. this uh, some of the countries, because you've alluded to already, Mr. McPherson, to globally, some countries have this approach, others have a partial approach, and so on. Can you give us some concrete examples? of countries we would recognize and what they're doing as compared to where we are right now? Yeah, well, the, there's, there's, many, there's many countries. The one that gets uh, highlighted the most because it's the most comprehensive approach to uh, decriminalization is Portugal. Um, Portugal decriminalized all drugs for, uh, for possession for personal use in 2001. Mm-hmm. So many years ago, they've had uh, a lot of experience with this. Um, they will argue that it was an important part of a comprehensive approach to substance use, uh, in that they really wanted to walk the talk that this is this is not a criminal issue. This is a health issue. Right. And so they they decriminalized uh, substance use and they reallocated funding towards health and social services, so harm reduction services, drug treatment services. Uh, their police were able to now refer people to health services instead of taking them downtown and booking them. Um, and after you know quite a few years, um, they they are one of the examples of a successful uh, program around uh, substance use. And with, with that a period of observation already well under their belts, it's also safe to assume that the critics of the idea in the first place, saying basically this is going to create a field day for drug traffickers in our country, we're going to be overrun by bad guys, well, 18 years after the fact, that's not the case at all, is it? No, it's not the case. And many people visit Portugal. There's a conference going in por- on in Portugal right now, and a number of Canadians are there. Um, our politicians have visited Portugal. Public health people have visited Portugal. So, you know, the ma- <laughs> to your point, the main thing is nothing really bad happened. The sky didn't fall. Yeah. Um, they got, they're getting on with uh, dealing with the intractable issue of, uh, of addiction and substance use. These are intractable problems that we need to learn how to manage. They're, not, they're never going to go away. And uh, I think Dr. Henry is saying, well, this, this could be one uh, key policy shift that we would make that would help us manage this issue better. Okay, now not all the time in the world for this question, but I think it needs to be addressed at least as best you can. Uh, Those critics of this idea here in British Columbia say, essentially, you're providing enabling and facilitating services for people rather than um, anything much beyond that. That is uh, one way of looking at it. Um, I to the, to those questions uh, or those statements, I I say we are not doing that. We are acknowledging a reality, a reality where our drug policy maximizes the harm for people who use substances. And if we are interested in protecting our youth and protecting our family members and community members from serious harms from substance use, we will implement a comprehensive public health. Approach approach that will decriminalize personal possession for personal use 
and it will provide an array of services, uh, harm reduction services, treatment services, other health services. That It's a health issue. So decriminalization is removing the harms that criminalization causes to people who have uh, who use substances that's the whole point and it's a it's it's within a public public health approach to acknowledge that criminalizing the very people you're trying to help doesn't really help anything Donald McPherson, we're uh, grateful for your time this morning. Mr. McPherson, friends, is the executive director of the Canadian Drug Policy Coalition. Where do we find you online? Uh, drugpolicy.ca. All right. Donald McPherson, thank you for this. We appreciate your time on a Sunday morning. And now enjoy that second cup of coffee. Thank you very much. Well, on Monday this past week, Google announced their move into healthcare, And experts are already warning when it comes to sharing personal health data, ethics need to be top of mind. We're very lucky this morning to be joined by Chris Hobbs, who is president and co-founder of TTT Studios here in Vancouver. They are a digital innovation studio. And Chris has already worked with the American Medical Association. So we'll have some insights into this merger uh, of technologies. Chris Hobbs, good morning. Hey, good morning. How are you doing today? I'm fine, thank you, sir. Just looking uh, through your, your list of people, there's a Chris Hobbs and a David Hobbs. I get, uh, is, is it the Hobbs Boys a company then? That would be true. We're actually twins. Oh, really? Interesting yeah. stuff. So, uh, and, and tell us who uh, the person is who has Mark Wilson is your UX director. Chris, what's a UX director? <laughs> UX director is the person who makes sure that the uh, the flow and the uh, the actual way the function of an app or software works. Uh, so it's on the designer side, but it's actually some of the most important thing because if you have Facebook, but Facebook doesn't work because it has missing views then your UX director should be fired. That's <sighs> darn good. <laughs> okay, so and you've been working with uh, a lot of companies, including Fortis locally. You're an app designer among many other digital solutions you find for your, uh, your clients. Tell us about your interfacing so far with the American Medical Association, Chris, by way of getting us to understand this Google uh, in, incursion into the market. Sure. Well, I, well to, be, to be realistic, what we did with the American Medical Association was a large blockchain-like project um, to really, uh, the problem they have in the States, so among many problems that we all have in healthcare, is that who owns the information? Sure. So what we did with the project with the American Medical Association was, is started a, um, a way um, with blockchain that allows you to own your own information, and then you can share that with the insurance companies, with the hospitals, whatever. So now when you were going into Akron, Ohio, and you were taking a blood test, and you got your results, and then you all of a sudden went to Toledo, Ohio, you had to retake that whole test. Mm. So with this project we did, you can actually have that information, so you don't have to have redundancies. Um, as well, it gave the, uh, the American Medical Association, um, kind of like what we're talking about with Google, a really big data pool of information that they can anonymize and then use AI engines to really understand some interesting data points. Okay, so then so that, then that is the crux of the point. And in my opening remarks, I talked about ethics needing to be yeah. top of mind because, of course, this is all about the incredibly personal information of millions <laughs> of patients, of clients. So what of does course. Google intend to do by entering this marketplace? Sure. Well, first, don't be evil, right? I, I think that's no the, uh, the Google mantra we can, we can live with. And, yeah. uh, you know, that hasn't been deteriorated at all over the last 20 years. Um, but really, really, in the, on the ethics side, I mean, they're going to have watchdogs, but they're going to be breaking things left, right, and center. I mean, this is a brave new world. And we really, you know, we need to have third parties really understanding what what it is that they're doing. Um, but there's going to be a lot of eggs broken on the way, I, I, I unfortunately do believe. Mm-hmm. Um, 
But but at the end of the day, you know, this is a data play. And as long as they know that, A, they need to protect the data and they need to anonymize that data, um, I'm, I'm hoping that, you know, the benefits are going to far, far, far outreach the, the, the negative implications. Uh, yeah, but you can understand the cynicism of millions, oh, of course, yeah. here, Chris, because these companies like Facebook, Google, etc., they were formed, they were created to, uh, to, to be a pool for data and then yeah. have that information to sell to the highest bidder. And they've made literally billions yeah. Oh, I was going to say they were created to make money. Yeah. At the end of the day. So, you know, how, how, do, how do we trust that? Um, you know, we, we really are going to have to have our, 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 our be careful with how, what we uh, allow in our own um, data, data policies that we, we allow on our devices. Um, as well, like I said, we, we do need governments to make sure that things are steered clear of uh, any, any, any weird stuff happening. What does Google actually want to do uh, that they may or may not actually be allowed to do? Oh, that's that's a good question. I mean, I, I mean, the strict Google's probably been doing this type of stuff for a long time already. I mean, at the end of the day, Google already knew a lot of medical information because of the Google search index. Alone. Of course, yeah. So when people search, I have a cold or, you know, I need flu medicine, they know that. That's data points they've been collecting for 30 years mm-hmm. or 20 years. Pardon me. I wish Google was that old. I'm not, I'm not even that old. Um, but, um, but yeah, <laughs> there's, so the the, they, 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 it's all about accumulating data, yes. but not necessarily for, uh, which is the purpose of the formation of their company, for resale. If they're mm-hmm. not going to resell the data, are they going to be some kind of, some kind of gathering spot uh, or hub for health data? Is that what they want to become? Well, I, I, I believe that, but it, it's all about reselling the data, but it's also about new product creation. I mean, um, Google, Google X or Google Ventures, they're always looking for new ways to sure. uh, utilize and leverage their, um, you know, their massive amounts of capital. Um, and this, this information is going to allow them to create these new products, especially in medicine. I mean, 20% of all of, you know, the economy is in the uh, medical industry. And this is a huge, huge, huge industry that, that, that's just ripe. I mean, AI was made for this industry, and mm-hmm. we're going to see some amazing things that come out of that. But we need to have data first. I mean, every time I talk to a client, and we, we, we start a we just start our, our discovery process of what we're going to do and what we're going to create, we always mention you need to create a data lake. And a data lake is actually nothing more than just a big pool of all the data you're ever going to collect. Sure. But you don't even know what it is right now, but you know that you're going to need it in the future. So this is what this company is doing. Is they're they're looking just like Apple and all these other ones with their with their medical devices and all this are looking for as much data as they can have. And then um, you know the AI algorithms, basically they're just going to run through there and they're going to notice um, all of and identify all these indicators that we as humans can't see because there's just too many variables. Sure. And um, you know that's going to be it's going to be a big revolutionary change in medicine. That's that's quite exciting to be honest. Interesting stuff. Now, Chris, you're a Vancouver guy. Let's bring this conversation back home for the last couple of minutes we have available to us. What's the status right now in British Columbia with respect to that lake, that data pool of information, and how is it shared, and who owns our medical records in BC? <laughs> well, to be honest, that's that's a really good question, and I think you have to make sure to read the uh, <laughs> read, read every single policy before you agree to it. Um, but there's just too much data out there. I don't to say to say that you own it, to say that I own it, to say the government owns it. I think that's a bit of a challenge. Too right much now. of it, huh? It's, there's too much of it, yeah. and and that's actually where it's interesting because I mean, when there's too much of it that isn't owned by anyone, that actually isn't a benefit to anyone. 
But when it's being in this big data lake by a larger organization or a government that then could take that and then run some algorithms through it, um, then it, this, this information is of value. So if it was just disparated all over the place, then this, this is superfluous information. So we really do need to have it all in one spot. Interesting. Now, is there any way, final question to you, and it's a toughie, is there any way an individual citizen or patient, because we're talking medical records, ha- can mm-hmm. have any control over his or her records? Well, that's a good question. I, I think, I, I, especially as the policies are evolving and evolving, I, I, that's, that's almost a question between government and um, <laughs> government and, and what they do. But, it, but at the end of the day, what you can do is you, you can opt out. So oh, okay. Opt, opt out of everything. You know, if, if you're afraid that Google's checking your, your search engines, use DuckDuckGo, which is, a, which is a bizarre website, that a search engine that anonymizes all the information. So there are ways to stay off the grid. But at the end of the day, do you really need to stay off the grid? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Interesting stuff. Now, this is just the beginning, too. So obviously, we're going to have to talk about this as it evolves and oh, yeah. some of those necessary regulations get imposed or not. And then we'll see what kind of trouble we've created. Sure, sure, sure. I Thanks agree. for this, Chris. Appreciate your time on a Sunday morning. Good to talk to you. Well, you have a wonderful day, okay? Canada's new food guide emphasizes eating plants, drinking water, and cooking at home. So what's to argue with that? Well, it's not as universally applauded and accepted as you might imagine. Uh, one who expresses some degree of skepticism about our new food guide is uh, is Richard Mathias, who is a professor emeritus in the Faculty of Medicine School of Population and Public Health out there at UBC. And he's here this morning to, well, uh, explain why he's not necessarily as enthusiastic as perhaps the people who wrote the new Canada Food Guide. Mr. Matthias, Richard, good morning and welcome. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here with you. It's good to have you on the program. So what's your beef with the new Food Guide? I have a sense that you're you're a little skeptical about some of those who contributed to the Food Guide. Well, I'm more than a... I'm very skeptical. Let's get down. Uh, the, The Food Guide... Uh, has a fundamental fault. Uh, it's been going on since the 60s and 70s when, when there was a move by in the United States to say that saturated fat is the cause of heart disease. Okay. That's wrong. Oh, that, but that was the consensus in the 60s when this whole movement started, you're suggesting? That's absolutely correct. Okay. And it was it was based on at that time not very good evidence, but I can understand why they felt that way. I was uh, you know in medical practice at that time, and we all accepted that. Since then, there have been uh, a number of different studies uh, who have said, "Gee, when we look at this and we look at people who eat saturated fat versus don't." They don't have an increased risk of heart disease. They don't have an increased risk of cancer. Uh, they don't have an increased risk of obesity. So what that leads me as a public health specialist to say is, well, then what is going on out there? Because we definitely have a problem. Okay, so now, did the new food guide that's only a matter of, what, two or three months old address yeah. any of your concerns, Dr. Matthias, in any way? They, they, what they basically seem to be addressing is that they're concerned about um, sort of global, uh, global warming and, and global health change in the, in the face of a worldwide epidemic of obesity. 
uh, the, the World Health Organization about four years ago said we have a major health problem which is affecting the world. That is the, the underlying cause of that is not being addressed by the Canada Food Guide. Okay, and, and, the food, and, and so are we back to saturated fats? Is that, uh, is, are we completing that circle? The problem is that the circle has been interrupted in that the underlying cause of the obesity epidemic is sugar. Ah, now we're cutting to the chase. Okay, carry now, on, please. Exactly. And what we're seeing is much like what we saw when we said that smoking uh, was a problem. The, the companies that were most affected fought that really quite successfully for several years. What we have now is, is, that, they, is that we're asking companies, we're asking the food industry, that we ask them to get fat out of the food. We're now saying, oops, we made a mistake. And it's not the fat in the food that was the issue. The problem is they have replaced it with sugar. You got it. The food needs to taste good, or they can't sell it. Sure, of course. So we're now telling we're we're now asking the industry to get the sugar out, which means basically replacing it with fat. And the, the industry is saying, "Look, can you guys get your get your game together here? Well, you know, why do you? Why are we hearing one thing from some places and and not others? And and." They are quite resistant, of course, to having to change their recipes, to having to change what they put on the shelves. Sure. Now, Dr. Essentially, okay. from a public health standpoint, if something says low fat, it says high sugar. Because the, the, the industry has to put something in there that tastes good. And what's cheap and easy to put in the food is sugar. I'm looking at a global news uh, summary of the new Canada Food Guide that is sort of bullet points of the the highlights. And one of the highlights, and I'm reading right from the the thing, is avoid processed foods and beverages that are high in sodium, sugar, and saturated fat. Now, there's the food guide addressing all the problem issues. We haven't talked about sodium yet, but certainly two of three, sugar and saturated fat. And they're recommending these these uh, uh, substances be avoided. What more can the food guide do? The food guide could, could, could look at the current evidence and put sodium and sugar in their recommendation to take saturated fat out because saturated fat is not associated with adverse health problems. Gotcha. In fact, it is the cure for a number of the health problems. Okay, so this was the consensus in the 60s that has subsequently been dis- or, or disproven. Let's talk about sodium, though, Dr. Matthias, because we haven't. We've talked about saturated fats, uh, which has, some of which has been debunked by yourself this morning. The danger of too much sugar in a diet. Is sodium at the same danger level in terms of personal intake as sugar? No. That's the the simple answer to that. And the reason for that is that when you have, when when you are taking in too much sugar, the body is producing insulin in response to that. And one of the things that insulin does, it tells the kidneys to keep more uh, more, uh, uh, salt 
in the system. It wants to expand the, the, the blood volume. That's what's causing the high blood pressure and the problem. So the, the issue is not sodium. It comes back again. The issue is too much sugar. Right. So the, the, so the, diet, the, the new food guide has failed Canadians to the extent that they're not properly emphasizing the, the dangers, frankly, of too much sugar in anyone's diet. Absolutely. And if they would change that, and, and what, they are, what they need to be talking about is that there's a fairly major movement um, on, on having very low sugar diets, much higher in fat, and they're much more healthy. And without being sounding like a rabid conspiracy theorist, your, 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 your take on this is that the sugar lobby has had an enormous effect on the lack of proper emphasis of the dangers of sugar in the new food guide. Yeah, and that, that shouldn't be a surprise to us. Of course not. And I mean, we, we're learning more and more about lobbyists and their, uh, their uh, effect on government uh, than we have in the past six months than we have probably in the last six years. And none of the news is very good. That's absolutely right. They have a they have their own perspective, and their their fundamental issue is making money, not not improving people's health. So what we're recommending is is that we need to go on a low carb, high fat uh, diet recommendation so to assist people in losing weight. Uh, improving their health outcomes, lowering their blood pressure. It has many, many beneficial effects. This is what we need to be telling people. Dr. Richard Mathias, thank you for this this morning. Very provocative stuff and a real pleasure to have you on the program. It was a pleasure to be here. Jill's series on BC Book Prize nominees continues, and it's a pleasure to welcome Bill Gaston to the program. Mr. Gaston joins us from Victoria to talk about his nominated book, which is called Just Let Me Look At You on Fatherhood. Bill Gaston, good morning. Good morning, Sterling. How are you today, sir? I'm pretty good. How are you? I'm fine, thanks. You know, I, one of the things that I did when I when I got a, a, an assignment to, to, to take a look at this book was to see what other people thought about it, and I read a few reviews, and there was one line that jumped out that, that just hit me right, right in the heart. The man, his younger self, this is talking about you and, and your book and your story in which you revisit uh, the places that you and your dad used to go fishing and, and uh, drink together and carry on and, and just have dad and son time and the reviewer says the man his younger self had been so eager to judge was in fact someone both nobler and more vulnerable than he had guessed and that hit me in my heart because I felt the same way about my dad and and I immediately dove into the book and thought okay this guy's on to something well done Okay, thanks, yeah. So talk to us a little bit about your dad. You're a BC guy. You've got a BC audience listening to you. You're from Victoria. Where did you used to go fishing? Where was that fishing hole that you guys used to mooch for salmon at? Well, uh, we fished all around, but we learned mooching. My dad grew up in the Pacific Northwest as well, and uh, uh, there's a style of uh, fishing called mooching, Mm -hmm. and uh, we stumbled on it when we were trolling up in the Sunshine Coast, up around, you know, actually Pender Harbor and this tiny place called Egmont. Sure, yeah. Yeah, and uh, people there, the people with the biggest fish around the cleaning table after, they were moochers. And so we figured, well, let's give that a try. So we did, and we learned how to mooch together up in a little place called Egmont, and we, uh, we... 
pretty much uh, did it each summer. And then when I was about 19 or so, uh, he bought a boat. And I lived in it over the summer, and I became a salmon guide. And he would, uh, I wouldn't schedule any charters uh, for a certain period of time, about usually about three weeks, and he'd come up and we'd live on the boat together. So you uh, maintained uh, that father-son relationship. The, the link was always fishing. The link was always fishing. And I'd have to say that, you know, the book at its heart is about... Um, is about the link that isn't there, you know, or isn't apparent to both of you. Um, as I say in the, the beginning of the book, it's the book is about yearning, and it, it attempts to catch capture what I what seems to be a, almost a universal uh, theme between, especially fathers and sons, and sons and fathers. Mm-hmm. And that is uh, the communication that isn't happening, the inability to 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 speak. You know, there's a kind of there's a link. And then we might spend time together. You might have what looks to be a good relationship, but something isn't um, taking place. There's something that's missing. And with my dad's, in my case, it was a wide, uh, it was a, a chasm because uh, my dad, well, he was a, an alcoholic. He drank, and he seemed profoundly unhappy. Though he had everything going for him, you know, he'd fought his way out of poverty. He had everything, the American dream. He was American he, before he became Canadian. Right. And uh, uh, he seemed to have ev- ev- everything, yet he seemed to be operating from this kind of well of despair. And uh, he suffered all these things um, early on in life that nobody knew about, and he chose not to tell a soul. He went to the grave uh, with these huge secrets. And and e- even a- over all those years and all those hours and probably collectively months of spending time together, just hanging out, you and your dad, uh, in, in many, many hours of silence, uh, none of these f- uh, ever escaped h- h- him. That's, that's right. In fact, he would make up things uh, about his past uh, to cover them over. And the, 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 the tragic irony of this is that if he had told anybody you know, about his secrets, about what he had survived in effect, uh, we would have forgiven him everything. Sure. Because like all, you know, and another thing I'm learning through writing this book is a lot of people have contacted me about, uh, you know, telling me, well, you've told my story. Mm -hmm. You know, Mm -hmm. you've told our story. We had the same kind of thing. And a lot of um, uh, people suffered like this, not just the father, but also the children uh, through uh, a lack of sharing the story. And, as a result, you know, you kind of write off your parents. You know, most adolescents do when they're, you know, the, when the parent, the parents fall off their pedestal. You know, sure, they become very human all of a sudden. But if one of them, you know, if if if, if one of them's a a drunk, or you perceive him as a drunk, you write him off really quickly, and almost permanently. You know, so it was really sad because he didn't tell anybody what made him this way, and if he had told anybody. He would have been instantly forgiven. He would have been, uh, we would have understood. Bill, how did you come to find out the secrets that your father never disclosed to you? Yeah, well, well, my mom knew most of them. And also my dad's uh, sister, who's still alive and who I uh, spoke with. And after my dad died, uh, and mostly after my mother uh, entered into a phase of dementia, you know, before she died, she would just spilling, you know, all this stuff that she'd never spilled before, and she'd right. repeat it. And a lot of things that uh, we I just didn't know, and uh, it was about my dad's uh, growing up when he was... Uh, and his dad. Yeah, and his dad. His right. Dad, yeah. 
Did you know your grandfather at all? Never saw him. Um, I don't even, I've never seen a picture of him. Hmm. I'm not even sure if a picture exists. And yet that was the cause, ultimately, for your father's uh, lifetime of depression, alcoholism, and general dissatisfaction, inability to just enjoy. That's, that's correct. The, the gist of it is, and this isn't even the worst of it, but I, I did learn fairly early on that when my dad was 10, they were living in Portland, Oregon, and um, my dad, his, his father was drunk and he attacked uh, my dad's mother, you know, his wife, and uh, tried to beat her up. My dad tried to protect her and got in between them with a fireplace poker. And so his dad, his, whose name was Osro, a very strange name, uh, attacked my dad also and broke his arm, broke his nose. Uh, it's, it's unclear whether or not he knocked out a tooth. Hmm. But anyway, that night after Osro had passed out, my dad's mom gathered my dad and his sister and went north to uh, various towns around, mostly Everett and other places, Monroe, and uh, hid from uh, Osro. And uh, and that's not the worst of it, which is uh, strange enough. Hmm. Well, that's and 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 so, I uh, were you, uh, I suppose ultimately, th- the emotion that you feel that caused you to write the book was it this sort of vacuum in terms of emotion that that goes way beyond disappointment that you were never able to bridge that gap even though you and your dad spent considerable time together mm-hmm. doing that fishing thing as dads and sons frequently do the and 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 the the joy of just being together is self-explanatory but it never got much deeper than going fishing yeah there, there was a depth but it was never spoken and again i really wanted to i was really sad about not uh coming to understand how he made himself that way how he, how he became the way he was and um so I wrote the book. I was, you know, I was really conflicted about it because I'm hauling out all this family, you know, dirty underwear. Sure, yeah. Really long laundry line, and you know, not just him, but myself and other people. And uh, but, and I quit this book a bunch of times. I had two different publishers, and I bailed, and I, you know, had to pay back the advance, and I, and I kept quitting, and I kept going back to it. And in the end, what, what the reason I wrote it mostly it was because. Um, he hadn't told this story that would have kind of exonerated him, to use that word. And um, I decided to tell his story for him. Good know, for you. So that, uh, yeah, and it was it was mostly for myself, I guess. It was kind of selfish. It, it aired the whole thing, and it, it, it made me feel good. And I think the capper on this, I was afraid, after it was published, I was afraid to send it to his sister, who's still alive and living down in Washington State. And I was kind of hoping, well, maybe... You know, maybe it won't. Maybe, maybe she'll never hear about it and won't know about it. So, what did I'm, she say when she read it? I well, gotta go, but I, I, I gotta ask you this. Yeah, well, about two weeks after I sent it, and I sent it only a few, about maybe a month ago, I got a, a, a long, long email, and she absolutely loved it. And oh, good. Just like revisiting her beloved brother, as as how she put it, and so, and a tone of vindication for the author as well. Yeah, it really felt good. Interesting stuff. Good book. Congratulations on being nominated for the prize as well. Okay. Well, thanks very much. It's a pleasure to have you on the program, Bill Gaston in Victoria this morning, friends. The new book is "Just Let Me Look at You" on fatherhood. 
Canada may be known for its landscapes and friendly people, but beneath the surface lies a darker side of crime, history, and the paranormal. Since 2017, the award-winning Dark Poutine podcast has explored the shadowy corners of the Great White North and beyond, delivering chilling tales from a uniquely Canadian perspective. Hosted by Mike Brown and Matthew Stockton with over 300 episodes and fresh releases every Monday, Dark Poutine is your weekly ticket to the creepier side of Canada. Listen to Dark Poutine on Apple, Spotify, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts.